Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. I'm your host, Ajua Robinson, and I'd like to take a moment to tell you about a new feature of Living Proof. In addition to listening, subscribing to, and sharing podcasts, you can now rate and write a review of each episode of Living Proof. To rate or write a review of a podcast, just go to our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu forward slash podcast and click on the create your own review button. We look forward to hearing from you. I'm your host, Peter Sabota. This is the second of three episodes in which Dr. Moyi Lee discusses her research in clinical work, bridging social work practice and an integration of Eastern philosophy and practice with traditional Western approaches to client change. Dr. Moyi Lee is professor at the College of Social Work at The Ohio State University. Her research interests include intervention research using a strength-based and solution-focused approach, as well as multicultural social work practice and education. In this episode, Dr. Lee discusses her research with female trauma survivors, many of whom are duly diagnosed, as well as homeless and exhibiting post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. Here she introduces her meditation curriculum, the role that self-determination and mindfulness play for her clients, as well as the research on the physical and neurological benefits of meditation. Elaine Hammond, the coordinator of UB School of Social Work's Jamestown, New York Extension Program, interviewed Dr. Lee by telephone. I'm thinking that it might be helpful as a description of Mm -hmm. integrative social work for you to talk a little bit about your study of meditation with the women. It's at Amethyst House? Yes. 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 Because I know some of what you are looking at are behavioral measures, certainly. Some of what uh, you are looking at are uh, qualitative issues. But I also know that you've taken a look at the very least at the literature, but on how the brain itself makes changes through the use of meditation. Mm, Yeah, I can definitely speak to it. And so, basically, I think it's in 2007, we got some funding from Ohio Department of Mental Health mm-hmm. um, to support, you know, the study, you know, using meditation for working with female trauma survivors who have experienced interpersonal abuse. Amethyst, actually, is a residential treatment facility for women who have substance use problems and who are also homeless. The women, when they first came in, they all went through a detox program. And so after they're stabilized, and so they will, you know, we basically, you know, recruit them. We ask them whether they're interested to come to the meditation program. The study itself, we use multi-method approach. We triangulate both qualitative and quantitative data. The quantitative data focus is actually a small, a small randomized control study. We recruit the ladies from Amethyst, and so half of them went to the control group that they received all other treatment at Amethyst, but not the meditation curriculum. And so the other half, they received you know, the meditation you know, curriculum also. For that meditation uh, curriculum, we have, I mean, I already mentioned that a little bit early on. We actually have um, Geisha Kelsing Damdu to help us to develop the curriculum. It's a six-week curriculum. So the ladies, 
meditate twice every day in the morning and then evening. So for six weeks, from Monday to Friday. So it's a pretty intensive program. But geisha <laughs> that is necessary if they really need to, you know, learn it. The first two weeks we focus on breathing meditation, which is more on the mindfulness. And then the second two weeks, the loving kindness, and also the last, you know, two weeks is on compassion meditation, okay. the give and take. And so. Let me talk a little bit about you know why we think meditation would be helpful for working with trauma survivors. Actually, if we look at how we define PTSD and DSM-4, if we look at the symptom, now the first one is they talk about all these intrusive symptoms, flashback, nightmare, that kind of thing, and then they talk about reactivity. So people psychologically, physiologically react to cues. They might not be related to the trauma, but they just look like, you know, resemble some piece of the trauma, and then it brings back all this reaction. And then we also talk about avoidance and general numbing. I am persistently, you know, avoid I mean, anything related to that. The last one is hypervigilance. If we actually look at all these symptoms carefully, it basically describes a situation that the client is still being trapped in the past trauma. You know, they have all this nightmare, you know, I mean, reaction to anything, you know, similar, you know, uh, to the trauma. So they're really, they're not able to live in the present. Mm-hmm. Instead, they're still being trapped in the past. The way I look at the challenge, you know, working with trauma survivor, I actually see there are several. The first one is actually about the physiological that of trauma. People talk about trauma register in the body. Actually, you know, even in 19th century, I think it's, I mean, 1893, Pierre Jeanette talked about trauma. I mean, at that time, there's no technology. I mean, he already talked about trauma actually registering the body because what happened is intense emotion interfere with how we process the experience into our consciousness. So what he's trying to say is like, you know, when people are in very intense emotion, they couldn't process that, you know, cognitively. What happened is that intense emotion stored as maybe visual imagery, physical sensation. Now, I think it's really brilliant because right now, with all this MRI and fMRI technology, we actually know, I would love to share with you some PowerPoint, but I don't have it, you know, but if you look at the brain structure, what happened is, like, you know, when people have the amygdala area uh, of the brain, respond to the emotional response. And so really the prefrontal and frontal cortex responsible for the cognition. There are actually studies that show, I mean fMRI study, when trauma survivors, when people show them, you know, images that are threatening, what happens is there are hyperactivation of the area around amygdala, which actually, you know, responds to the, you know, cognitive control. So it basically describes a situation that the pathway between the emotional response and the cognitive control is blocked when people, they experience intense emotion. If you look at it, I don't know whether it's the, it's the wisdom or, you know, whatever. So people, I mean, when they really need to be able to process, you know, how to deal with intense emotion, the pathway is blocked. And so that actually explains, you know, I mean, all this affect, this regulation that we see a lot trauma survivors. Yes, That's it does. something about the physiological, you know, thing about, you know, trauma. Now, people also talk about the coupling 
of you know, trauma-related sensation. Basically, what they're talking about is actually, you know, they call it defensive reaction. What happens is the response to the trauma become a conditioned response. So take, for example, the women uh, maybe just sexually harassed, you know, by a man who, who had a bear. And so the next time when she walked, you know, on the street and saw a guy coming, you know, to her with a bear, what do you think would be the reaction, you know? She might feel trigger all this fear already. So that actually, you know, we are talking about the coupling, you know, of this all this sensation. And so I think the last, you know, clinical challenge when I look at treating, you know, working with trauma survivor is the fact that trauma response is actually bimodal. We talk about the flight and the fight response. So what happened, I guess what happened is like, you know, clients, they really lost the ability to regulate the emotion because the emotional response almost become automatic. When they see something, they already have those response. So it severely limits their ability to actually make decisions of their life or what they should do in response to what's going on now. Instead, it's always being triggered by something mm-hmm. in the past. So I do think you know, these describe you know, some of the major clinical challenges when we work with trauma survivors. Now, meditation, you know, I mean, in terms of the tradition, it's more than 4,000 years already. And it's not just in the East. Um, it's also, you know, I mean, even in Catholicism, we also have a contemplative, meditative tradition also for a long, long time. But meditation have actually two intentions. One is basically, you know, what we call mindfulness. It's basically, you know, helping them to be more aware of what's going on now, the moment. So in the, here in the U.S., we call that mindfulness. But the second intention, I don't think people talk about that too much here, is actually to foster, you know, emotion, foster passion and a loving attitude towards life. And so this is something that I guess I think we, we don't talk about that too much here. But that is a very important, you know, intention of meditative practice also. Now, um, I guess, you know, I mean, right now, because the way I think meditation will help with trauma survivor, because I think it very nicely addresses some of the clinical challenges in working with trauma survivors. Um, the first thing is about mindfulness. Um, we all know that, you know, there are some theories I can talk a little bit about, you know, if you're interested, um, that really talk about meditation as a, a treatment approach that will help you know, them. Mm-hmm. Uh, one theory I think we all know that is system perspective. System perspective, you know, talk about how we regulate, you know, I mean, the system based on the feedback mechanism. It's quite simple and everybody in social work should know. But the more I learn, I mean, I think about the system perspective, I think it's really brilliant. It actually talks, because one thing it talk about is the feedback mechanism is actually self-regulating and self-corrective. We cannot teach people how to change the feedback mechanism because it's self-corrective. And I mean, um, what actually changes is the input. So it's being the feedback mechanism is actually activated by the input. What's going on? You know, what's going in the system, into the system? And so that change. You know, the, so just think about that. It, what that means is it's so important for a person to be aware of what's going on. Because without that awareness, they cannot activate the self-regulating you know, or corrective you know, feedback mechanism to deal with what's going on. And think about trauma survivors, because they're always being trapped in the past. They're not in the present. And one, I think that's one of the major reasons why we see so much dysregulation in them, and they're not making really helpful choices, life choices for them.
because they're not seeing what's going on now. They're still so much living in the past. Now, self-determination theory by DC and Ryan, you know, speak to the same thing. Because what they said is if people can be aware, I mean, open awareness to what's going on really help people to make better choices to life. So it's actually the same idea. And I think the first intention of meditation about mindfulness totally addressed this issue by bringing, by helping the client to be able to attend to what's going on now, to be more aware of what's the need now and what's going on, they'll make much better choices in their mm-hmm. life instead of being, you know, still, you know, dragging the past, by the past, what's going on in the past. So that's one piece of it. But the other piece, I think, is really about the physiological and neurological impact of meditation on, on people. With so much, you know, I mean, MR technology, we have a many more study looking at meditation and neurological, physiological, you know, impact. And one thing is the relaxation response. I think well known now that meditation actually brings about a relaxation response, which is related to lower heartbeat, um, increase uh, lower blood pressure, and so I mean, all kind of goodies. On the other hand. Um, there are also a number of things about meditation on the brain, uh, neurologically, that I think is really, really important. Because uh, fMRI, functional MRI, there are findings that meditation related to activation of the amygdala region and also activation of the prefrontal cortex and the yes. frontal cortex. fMRI, you know, we have a lot of study. I mean, if you just... Google it, you can definitely, you can find, you know, a lot of stuff here. But other study about, you know, MRI is basically brain mythology. They look at brain structure, not functional MRI, look at the process. Study from brain mythology, they also share with us some very interesting things. Because what they find now is they're looking at long-term meditator. So not just meditating for 30 minutes, you know, in the past week, okay. So people who've been meditating for a long time, what happened is like they actually find out they have thicker prefrontal cortex. And the more interesting thing is it's more prominent in people who are older, meaning meditation actually counteracts the impact of aging on our brain. Because, you know, when we get older, I mean, corticolea got thinner. But in long-term meditator, it doesn't happen at all. And also, it's also related to, you know, an increase in the, I think, in the gray matter, the volume of the gray matter, which is, again, you know, related to cognitive control and a lot of things. And so, and people also look at brain uh, spectroscopy, which look at the brain chemistry. And there are also some studies showing that um, meditation related to increased dopamine release, which related to motivation, that kind of activity. And then when we look at MRI study with people with trauma survivors or PTSD, basically we see thinner cortical layer, decreased white matter, etc., etc. because we haven't done any study yet, so I cannot say for sure. But what we're seeing is, is there's an inverse relationship there. It might suggest that meditation can be a very good countermeasure to counteract some of the neurological impact of trauma on the brain as well. And so I think, you know, these are some of the reasons that we think meditation should be a very good fit with trauma survivors. And so maybe I can go back to the study. I can share with you some stories. I remember a client first cohort 
She shared with us that she's been self-mutilating since she was a teenager because of all the things that happened to her, and she's never able to stop it. But two weeks into the meditation, she's able to stop it, to stop cutting herself, which is, you know, to me, is actually amazing. It's even difficult for me as somebody in clinical practice to explain, but she shared that with us. And she's not the only one who shared with us all this amazing thing that mm-hmm. meditation has helped them to do, going back to the study. So what happened is we developed some measures. Primarily, it's the PTSD symptoms. We measure pre, post, and six months. Looking at the PTSD symptoms, we look at the emotional state. We actually use an instrument, and it actually measures. We have 24 items for six emotions. I think we have two positive emotions, which is love and joy, four negative emotions, fear, anger, sadness, and shame. So we get them. We also have an instrument on mindfulness, you know, looking at how mindful, you know, they become. And then uh, we also have another instrument looking at emotion regulation. We also collect the saliva sample to look at the cortisol level. So basically that describes our study. So the assumption, you know, if you look at the framework, our research hypothesis, what we look at is meditation should reduce stress, help increase mindfulness, and also help increase positive emotion and emotion Uh regulation ability. All this will help them decrease, will lead to a decrease in PTSD symptoms and also increase in functioning. So we have another measure, which is one measure used by Ohio, developed by ODMH, the consumer form A. And so that is a measure, you know, looking at functional level. So that basically is the study. Now, right now, we actually have findings for all the instruments except the cortisol because our last collection is in September and, you know, the lab took it forever to analyze. (laughs) Yes, because we need to analyze all three, actually five, cortisol at the same time. So we have to actually freeze all these samples until the last, last collection and then send it to the lab. I don't want to go into all the details, but there are significant differences. The meditation group, all the measure, their decrease in PTSD symptoms, increase in positive emotion, et cetera, et cetera, and increase in functioning. So it's all significant for the meditation group and non-significant for the control group. And so we also compare, see whether the changes observed in the meditation group is more significant than the changes we observe in the control group. And again, the findings are very positive especially about the symptoms. There are significant reduction in the PTSD symptoms and also symptom distress in the client and also some significant differences in negative emotion for the client in the meditation group. We also look at the six months data. I actually use mixed model analysis, linear mixed model analysis to look at the free assessment. And across time, there are significant time and group differences, time and group effects between the two groups, except only one or two dimensions in the emotion and emotion regulation. For all the other, there are significant differences. So the finding itself at least provides some evidence for the effectiveness of meditation working with this group of clients. I remember asking one client, you know, how meditation is different from all the other treatment they receive I mean, amethyst, because, you know, it's a treatment program, so they receive a lot of many, many other treatment. And so she told me she doesn't need to share with anybody her own problems. She can actually deal with it inside. That is something that she really 
appreciate. She didn't need to talk about her problems all the time. She can deal with the inside. I still think meditation is a complementary. I think it much better prepare a client to process whatever they need to process. It also builds the strength and capacity really in significant way. They're able to be calmer. I mean, that is another significant finding we find from the client. They are a lot more calmer to yeah. deal with whatever going on in life because they are pretty hectic. <laughs> I mean, this group of ladies, yes. they have even, pl- I mean, the first week when we get them to sit down, just to sit down is a major challenge. And so, but I think meditation is low cost. When people learn how to do it, they don't need to depend on anybody else. They can do it at any time that they need. Some of the clients, now, of course, after the six-week curriculum, we still ask them whether they are still practicing. And, of course, they're not practicing as intense as before. Many of them share with me that if they feel stressed, if they want to blow up or want to go back to use, they have to too. They can still calm down and breathe and relax and then slow down and then to help them to, to see what they want to do next step. You've been listening to Dr. Moyi Lee discuss an integrative body, mind, and spirit approach to social work assessment and treatment on Living Proof, the podcast series of the UB School of Social Work. Follow our series to hear episode three of Dr. Lee's discussion. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.